Take your Bibles and turn with me to John, John chapter 7. It's been several weeks since we've been able to be here. A couple of weeks ago, we had kind of a special Sunday morning where we had breakfast, and then I spoke to you on the back of a horse, and then Jameson was here that next week, and then last week we focused on our follow-up plan for the look-up tour. Today we want to go back into the Gospel of John. We're going to start in chapter 7. Before we do that, let's just look to the Lord in a word of prayer. Father, I pray that you would help us to turn our gaze upon Jesus this morning. Father, there's people here this morning who, it's been a rough week for them. Maybe something came into their life they were totally unexpecting. Maybe something that's been just going on for a long time. And it's just the sheer attrition in their spirit. Because of the weight. Lord, it's so easy for us to turn our eyes to our problems. Help us, Lord, to take our eyes off ourselves, to look to Jesus, to see him this morning high and lifted up. To understand a little bit about his message, a little bit of his method. To fall a little bit deeper in love with him. Gave his life to purchase us from sin. Help us, Lord, that we might be effective followers of Jesus. That our lives may truly be yours. Lord, it's easy to sing a song like you are my all in all and to love the lyrics and to love the tune and to love the feeling and to forget the words. That you would be our all in all. Everything. You would consume us. This world would be a different place. Bless us in your word today. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to just read the text. There are about six or seven months in the ministry of Jesus between the end of chapter 6 and chapter 7, verse 1. Jesus' earthly ministry spans somewhere around three years, correct? He goes into his ministry when he's about 30, and he's crucified at about the age of 33. So about three years of his life are devoted to public ministry. And about six or seven months of those three years in the Gospel of John There's nothing said. 
except after this, after this miracle of the feeding of the 5,000, we really should say about the feeding of the 20,000, because it was 5,000 men, and most of those men had a wife, and some of them had one or two kids, probably more than one or two kids. So it's after that miracle and the subsequent teaching that Jesus was going in a circuit in Galilee. And the synoptic gospels talk a lot about what's going on in that time. He goes up into Caesarea Philippi. And a lot of things happening where Jesus in this six months is now turning his attention away from the crowds and he is focusing on 12 guys intensively. And so he's in a circuit in Galilee and he would not go about in Judea. So he's staying up in Galilee and he would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. And if you will remember in chapter 5, it tells us the reason they are initially beginning to want to kill him and that is because he healed a man at the pool of Bethesda who was lame and he did it on the Sabbath. And they wanted to kill him. Now, the Jews' feast of booths. And if you're used to the old King James Version, if that's what you grew up on, it was called the Feast of Tabernacles. The Feast of Booths was at hand. And in our scripture reading this morning, Ben read to us from Leviticus chapter 23, where it details what the Feast of Booths is all about. It's at hand. It is one of the three convocations in Israel where the Jewish men were expected to go to Jerusalem and to appear before the Lord. Unleavened bread, Passover, weeks, Pentecost, and booths in the fall. We'll talk about it in a few minutes. So his brothers. This is a problem to those who believe in the perpetual virginity of Mary. Okay? Because Jesus had half-brothers. So the brothers of Jesus say to him, leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works that you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known publicly or openly, if he wants to manifest his message and who he is. says no one is doing things in secret if they want to have a big splash in the world. For not even his brethren believed in it. Not at this point. Jesus replied to them, my time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I am not going up to this feast, for my time has not yet fully come. 
After saying this, he remained in Galilee. But after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up, not publicly, but in private. The Jews were looking for him at the feast and they were saying, where is he? And there was a lot of muttering about him among the people. While some said he is a good man, others said, no, he is leading the people astray. Yet because of the fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly about him. And about the middle of the feast, Jesus goes up into the temple and he began teaching. The Jews therefore marveled and they said, how is it this man has learning or letters when he has never studied? Very reminiscent of what they said when he was just a boy. When he goes down to the temple, remember that? He goes to his first Passover with his parents. His parents are on the way home and they can't find him. They go back and he's in the temple. And he was teaching all the wise men of Judea. And they were marveling at what the man Jesus could do and what he could say. How does he know this stuff? He's just a boy. Once again, they are marveling at his teaching. So Jesus answered them, my teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone's will, and I want you to notice this. This is an important verse. If anyone wills to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I'm speaking on my own authority. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory. The one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true. And in him there is no falsehood. Let's work through the text. Let's think about some things that are relayed to us. And then I want to get to the main point of the message. Just make some application. This is kind of biographical stuff. It's not discourse. We just finished a discourse of Jesus. I'm the bread of life. This is a circumstance. It's at the Feast of Booths. Now let's think about some things that are happening here. This is the October. Okay, Feast of Booths starts October the 15th. And it goes for seven days until the 22nd. So this is the October that precedes the spring in which Jesus is crucified at the Passover. Okay, so this is October, and by spring, like April, Jesus is going to be crucified. So we are in the last segment of Jesus' earthly ministry. So we are at booths or tabernacles. And in spring, we will see Passover. And Jesus will be crucified as the Lamb of God. So we got about six months. What we see in this stage of the book of John going forward is we see that the Jews have had some smoldering hatred over what he has done. And that smoldering hatred is going to turn into a full-blown desire to destroy him. 
And so what we're going to see is in this next section of the book of John, we are going to see a developing forest fire. We are going to see men who have tolerated Jesus, although they disliked him and hated him, but they didn't know what to do about it. Turning from that and saying, this guy is evil and we will destroy him. And eventually... It's going to come full circle to where Judas is used by Satan. It's going to tell us in John 13 that when Judas goes out of the upper room, it's going to say that Satan inhabited him. Really, the only place in Scripture, you know, you find a lot of places in Scripture where it says a demon was in somebody. This is a place in Scripture where it says Satan himself entered into him. And all of the forces of darkness are going to combine against this individual, Jesus, to destroy him. But God will be the victor. But this is what's happening as we move forward in the Gospel of John. Now, I think one of the things to note, and I'm sure you noticed this as we read the text, if you were paying any attention, one of the things that Jesus is stressing in this verse is Jesus is on God's timetable, not his own. And nothing will alter that plan. Jesus says to his brothers, you go up to the feast, your time is always here. My time has not yet come. Now, that's very reminiscent of John chapter 2 when Jesus was at the Feast of Cana at the beginning of his ministry, right? And Mary comes to Jesus and says, they're out of wine. You've got to do something. What did Jesus say? My hour has not yet come. When we get to John chapter 17 and verse 1, Jesus is going to come out of the upper room. He's going to be on his way to his betrayal in the garden, and he's going to stop and he's going to pray to the Father, and he's going to say to the Father in this prayer, Father, the time, the hour is here. Glorify your Son, that your Son may glorify you. The time has come. Here Jesus says, my time has not yet come. What we see is God has a timetable. God makes everything beautiful in our time. Amen? Right? You agree with that verse? (laughs) God makes everything beautiful when I want it to be beautiful. No, when does God make everything beautiful? His time. God has a time. God has a plan. And he doesn't consult us. Does he? God has a sovereign plan that he was unfolding through the life and ministry of Jesus to bring salvation to the broken world. And although Satan and all the forces of darkness and although evil men would combine against him, God's plan would not be altered. We will see that in this text. Now, I want us to think about the Feast of Booths. Now, when I say the word booth, I don't think of a tent When I think of a booth, I think of the Lincoln County Fair. Okay? That's just me. A booth. But when they say the word booth, 
Well, when we talk about a tabernacle, we talk about the Feast of Tabernacles or the Feast of Booths, we really could say the Feast of Tents. But they didn't go to Cabela's and buy a tent. And even today, if you went to Israel during this time and you went there during Sukkot, Feast of Sukkot, they don't go to Cabela's and buy a tent and just live out in the countryside. They make a booth. And the, the roof of it is made of palm leaves. And it's not an impenetrable roof. It actually is supposed to be able, when you're inside your booth, under the Judaic explanations of Mosaic law, they are to be able to look through the palm leaves and to see the stars. You should see the stars. But there should be enough coverage from the palm leaves that you have shade during the day. So it is a shady place, but it's also a place where you're out in nature and you can see the stars. So it's both. Now remember, we'll look at this as we go through this, Israel is a pretty arid place, isn't it? It's dry. Immediately following this, Booths, is when the rainy season begins. But Booths happens in the Judaic calendar prior to the rainy season. That's a good thing. Okay? It's a good thing, or else you're going to have to go get your blue tarp. Okay, so let's go on. So we're talking about a tabernacle. We're talking about a tent. <clears throat> At the beginning of our study in John, in chapter 1, verse 14, we saw this verse. And the word became flesh, and he tented among us, and we beheld his glory. It's an allusion to this. We also see it in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, God tells us in that chapter, Paul is writing, he says, we know that if this earthly house, this tabernacle, this tent is dissolved, we have a building from God eternal in the heavens. In this tent, we groan. But in the one to come, there is no groaning. But we are present with the Lord. So all these things point back to what we see here called the Feast of Tabernacles. So remember, this is in October. And there are three things that are happening in the Feast of Booths. When the Jews celebrate it, and if you would read in the book of Leviticus again, or you would read in the book of Numbers, or in the book of Deuteronomy, and you really looked at what's going on in the Feast of Booths, there are three things that are being depicted, all of them ultimately pointing back to Jesus as the Messiah, but three distinct things are a part of the celebration that are important to it. Number one is timing. If you noticed when Ben read, it tells us that this happens after the produce of the land has been gathered. In Israel, there are seven main agricultural crops. Anyone want to guess? Wheat, barley, honey, pomegranates, grapes, figs, and I'm missing once I've got to look at my notes, olives. Seven main agricultural crops. 
So we're talking about grapes, figs, pomegranates, olives, honey, wheat, barley. Some of these are planted annually, wheat and barley. Some of them come from the orchards. Some of them come by the bees, the honey. But all these things have been gathered into the storehouses of the Israelite people. The season has ended, harvest is done, and now it's time to go camping. Okay? Now you got a day off. They got seven days off. They called it the Feast of Booths. The other thing that's important with this timing is not only are the Jews looking back and thanking God for a harvest, we got enough wheat, we got enough figs, we got all the things we need for the year. They're thanking God, but they are also looking forward in expectancy, trusting, praying that God will give them a rainy season. Because that's about to begin. Because what's going to happen is, if you don't get a rainy season, you're not going to get what next year? A harvest. So you look back, thanking God, and you look forward in expectation. The other thing that is a part of this is the tent. Why do they live in a tent? Why do they live in a booth? Because they are remembering God's provision during the wilderness wanderings. The Jewish people wandered for how many years in the wilderness? It's a long time to be lost. Ladies, aren't you glad your husband wasn't the guy driving that day? You know, you know, 40 years wandering in the wilderness. And during that time, they got manna every day. They got water from the rock. They had Shekinah glory of God that was directing them. It said the soles of their feet, the soles of their shoes didn't wear out, and their clothing didn't rot. God provided for them. They're in a wilderness experience. They're not happy where they are. They're living in a tent in the middle of the wilderness, and they complain, and they murmur, and they mutter. But God meets their need, and they remember that. The last thing that is here is Thanksgiving. And so if you look, especially in the book of Numbers, and you read about the Feast of Booths, you will see that on every day of this seven-day feast, God prescribes how many bulls are to be killed, how many this, how many that, and exactly what they are to do in thanking God for what he has done in providing for all their needs and in giving them a harvest. So that's what Booths is. Now, during the post-exilic observation of Judaism, during the days of Jesus, there are two main rituals that are going on at Sukkot. Two main rituals. One happens at the middle of the week and one happens at the end of the week. Those two main rituals will become the focus of what Jesus teaches in chapter 7 and chapter 8. In the middle of chapter 8 of that, Jesus has another interaction right in this feast. And it's with a woman who was taken in adultery. And the Jews bring this woman to Jesus, and what do they want him to do? Say, stone her. 
And on either side of that story, these two rituals happen, and Jesus uses them to point to himself. Here's the two rituals. The first one is the lighting of the lamps. It mentions this in chapter 8, verse 12, right after Jesus forgiving the woman who was taken in adultery. And it points to the Shekinah glory cloud that directed them in the wilderness wanderings. Remember that? In the story in the Old Testament, the Shekinah glory cloud. The children of Israel did not need to know. They did not wonder where they were going to go or when they went. The Shekinah glory cloud moved and showed them where to go. And Jesus is going to stand up when this is going on and they are looking back at the Shekinah glory. And Jesus is going to say, hey, I want to announce something. I am the light of the world. Look to me. I am the light of the world. You know what? Most of the Jews who are there don't look at that and say, woohoo. We know who our Messiah is. You know what they say? He's got to go. This guy has got to go. He is leading us astray. He has become so brazen that he is willing to go to this high festival and stand in front of the entire nation and say, I am the Shekinah glory of God. And they are offended at it. The other thing that is a part of this, the other main ritual, is the ceremonial drawing of the water. And this is a reminder to them that when they were in the wilderness, God said to Moses, strike the rock and then speak to the rock. But what did Moses do the second time? He was ticked off and he hit it. Nevertheless, God gave him water twice out of the rock. God opens the fountains of the deep in the wilderness. Now, if you ever saw a painting of that, it probably looks like some little trickle of water coming out. That's not what happened. I mean, this is like a deluge. Uh, remember, there's like two million Jews. Okay, they're not drinking from some little seep out of the rock. They are drinking from God opening the fountains of the deep and bringing forth a stream of water that will sustain the nation. This is a big deal. And Jesus is going to go and say, I am the water of life. On that day, when they do that, he's going to say, I'm the water of life. And he says, if you believe in me, out of, not out of the rock, he's going to say this, out of your belly, out of your belly will flow rivers of living water. And he was speaking of the spirit that he would give. So what he's saying is this. Yeah, God did a big deal. God rent the rock and out came water and it brought life. That was a big deal. But God's doing a bigger deal. Now, God rends our belly, our innermost being, and out of us, clay Earthen vessels out of us, broken and marred people, the very Spirit of God flows out of us and gives life to others. 
And Jesus says it's all because of me, because I'm the water of life. And once again, they all jump up and down. Woohoo, he's here. They say, he's got to go. This guy's got to go. Okay, there's a problem we got to clear up. Here's the problem. Did Jesus tell his brothers he was not going to this feast and then turn around and go? Woo. Matt told us this morning to let your yes be yes and your no be no. What was Jesus doing here? Go to the feast with us. I'm not going to go. Then a couple days later, he goes. What's that? Was Jesus intentionally deceiving his brothers? Hmm. Now, it tells us in Matthew 13 that Jesus had a brother named James. He has a brother named Joseph. He has a brother named Simon. Now, we don't know much about this guy at all. He has a brother named Judas, who also goes by the name of Jude. This guy, now by the way, at this point of the reading, none of these guys believe in Jesus, right? Judas becomes a believer and he writes one of the postcards at the back of the New Testament called the book of Jude. That's this guy. There's a lot of Jameses in the New Testament. Sometimes we get them all screwed up. But this guy, it tells us in 1 Corinthians 15 that after Jesus rose from the dead, he went and found his oldest brother. Not older than him, but the oldest of the brothers besides him. His name is James. He goes and he finds James. He says, James, I want you to believe in me. I'm alive. And this guy becomes the pastor of the church at Jerusalem. It tells us in Fox's Book of Martyrs that the early church fathers referred to him and said they called him Old Camel Knees. Because he spent so much time in prayer that he had so many calluses on his knees. They called him Old Camel Knees. That's just James. The other guys we don't know much about, so they do believe in Jesus. But we still got to go back to the problem. You know, it'd be real easy to skip the hard stuff, isn't it? In fact, look at a commentary and see if anybody even brings this up. Most people don't bring it up because we don't like to think about it. What's Jesus doing here? Is Jesus deceiving his brothers? Well, there's some things we need to think about. His statement is directly related to their request and the way that he replies. There is a word there, yet. You go now, I'll come later. I'm not going now. I'm not going yet. It's not an unequivocal statement by Jesus in the text that he will not go. But the way he is answering them is this way. He is saying to them, you go now because your time is always here. Your time is always here because you're a part of the world. And the world loves you, but the world hates me. You remember that in the text? The world hates me. And what he's saying is, my time has not yet come. I'm not on your timetable. And I don't just do 
your bidding. How many of us would like to go to Jesus and say, be on my time? I'm going to go to the feast, why don't you go with me? And Jesus doesn't just do what we want. He follows the Father's plan. So he is not being deceptive here, but in his answer, he is pointing to the reality that his timetable is not their timetable, and his message is not their message. And he is drawing a clear distinction between himself as Lord and who they are as men. So there's some difficulties you've got to wrestle with it there, but Jesus is not being deceptive. Jesus is simply asserting his sovereignty. I'll go when I'm ready. I'll go if I'm ready and when I'm ready. Not just because you asked me. I'm not here to do your will. If you will to do my will, you will know that what I'm saying is true. And that's all in the text. Now, there are two massive truths that we are tempted to believe. This is the crux of the message. I'm going to bring it to a close. In chapter 6 and chapter 7, John is shattering some myths. If you will look back with me at chapter 6 for just a minute, and you turn to verse 15, you will be reminded with me that after the feeding of the 5,000, the crowd is excited. And they say, this is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world, and then perceiving that they were about to come and take him by force and make him king, Jesus withdrew. Do you remember that? Now, here's the first temptation that we face as Christians. This is a biggie. If Donald Trump wins the election, the kingdom will come. Okay? I'm joking. But we think that way. We think in such worldly, carnal terms that we actually believe that if only the church was in a position of power, we would change the world. The whole world would turn to Jesus. Everything would be good. You know what? That's a myth. It's a lie. It ain't true. We live in a fallen, cursed world. If only we were in a position of power, we could change the world. It's not going to happen. That's not how the kingdom comes. The first missionary that went to the Islamic world went there in 1315. I can't remember his name. He said, we have seen many knights go on crusade to change the Islamic world. And it ain't going to happen. I'm really, like, botching his quote. But he said this, the only way it's going to happen is through blood and tears. He went there. And they stoned him. They stoned him. 
and all the crusaders, crusaders said were a waste. If only we were in a position of power, we could change the world. Here's the other one. If only we had worldly prestige and popularity. It's kind of like the first one, but it's different. If only we had all the popularity and prestige of the world, then we would change it. That's a myth. It's a lie. The disciples are essentially saying to Jesus, go to Jerusalem and dazzle the crowd with all your power. Show them all your might. No man who wants to be known openly stays in secret. No, if you want to really change the world, Jesus, go to Jerusalem and do a big show. Put yourself on display. You know, like Satan said, throw yourself off the temple and the angels will come and catch you. And the whole world will believe. It's a lie. You know what will save people next Sunday evening and Saturday? Not glitz, not glamour. Simple message. Christ died for your sin. Believe in him and you are saved. Faith alone. It's a simple message. So what does Jesus do when he gets there? We'll look at this next week. He goes down in the temple and he does a big miracle. No, what did he do? He goes down the temple and he teaches them. He teaches them. Now, just think with me real quickly as we break into a close. God has chosen something. God has chosen, in 1 Corinthians 1, a foolish message. The word foolish is a Greek word, moronic. That's the Greek word, moronic. God has chosen a foolish message, a Messiah on a cross. A God getting strung up in the raw, with his beard pulled out, bloodied and battered and dying. What kind of message is that? Stupidity. God has chosen a foolish method. Proclamation. Verbally telling somebody. That's not just public preaching, that's private as well. When you go to somebody and you say, look, God has an answer to your problem, your big problem, which is sin, and he will forgive you. And you know how he will do that? Because a man named Jesus, who is God, died on a cross for you. It's a foolish method, and he is a foolish people. God says in the same chapter, God didn't choose to save many wise. God didn't choose to save many noble. God chose the what? Foolish things of the world to confound the mighty. And that's what we see in the text. Jesus' answer to his brothers, and we'll study this next week, is he says, my time has not yet come, and he says, my message is not popular, it is confrontational, and people hate it. People hate it. They're not ambivalent. You go to them and you say, Jesus is the only way, and unless you believe in him, you will perish eternally in a place called hell, and God will throw you bodily, his angels will throw you bodily into a lake that burns with fire. Wow. Really? 
I mean, it's like that clear? It's, I either live because I believe in Jesus, or I burn in hell forever? I don't even like that. And I'm even a Christian, and I don't like that part of it. Right? That those people I love that refuse to believe in him are going to be punished from his presence forever? That's not popular. That evokes hatred. And that's exactly what we see in the text. So we see this. God sets the agenda, not man. The message is his. It's not ours. Woe to us if we change it. Right? If I stood in front of you and I just said, look, you know, as long as you're a good person and, you know, just come to church and, you know, just, you know, I don't want to meet him after telling you that. I don't tell you that you got to go to hell forever and burn there because I want to tell you that. The only reason I tell you is because the message is his, and I dare not, I dare not mess with that Amen. because I will be accountable. And then the times and the seasons are in his hand. It's his. So, have you repented and believed? I mean, serious. I read the story this week about a guy, and I'll close. I shouldn't even tell the story. It's really short, though. His family was like the Budweiser of England in Victorian era. They were wealthy beyond belief. Major, major money. He goes to the south of France, down on the Riviera, on the Mediterranean, spending some time there, and God smites him. And he was born again. He comes home as a new babe in Christ, and he is going with a friend of his, and they are walking down the street in London. They have Hundreds of pubs across England. One of them was named the Rising Sun. As he's walking by the pub, a woman in tattered garments is carrying three children and goes into the pub. And he stops and he notices. She finds her husband and she turns him and says, Honey, I have no money for the kids. They're hungry. He takes her by the neck into the street and pummels her, and she is laying in the gutter, weeping. He turns and he goes back in. He goes to pick her up, not the dad, this new believer. And as he does so, He stands, and right here is his name. The pub. His last name. And he saw his name over that deed. And he fell in the gutter. 
and he wept. And he renounced all of his wealth, and he began to build poor houses in London. That's repentance. It was the fruit of conversion. Have we repented? Do we see our name over the sin? Or do we just say, I'm good to go? Just say it. Lord, I pray that you would bless us with a spirit of repentance. Help us to see our name over the deed. Help us to see our name on the blood-stained hands that were nailed to a cross. Holy Spirit, only you can do the work. It's in your name I pray.